All right, I'm, okay. I'm good. Cool. And so, Cameron, I'll ask you a question, and then you respond, all right? Yeah, go for it. Um, I'm trying to think of something. What can we talk about? I don't know. Uh, oh, oh, I got one. I got one Okay. Okay? Yeah. Are you ready? No. Okay, well, <laughs> you will be. Here. Here's the question. <laughs> Cameron, they tell us we're supposed to stay inside, right? We're not supposed to... We're not supposed to go out. I mean, you're you're allowed to take walks. You're allowed to go out and get the essentials, right? But all the fast food chains are still open. You're still allowed to go to the drive-through, and, and this whole drive-through thing, it seems to be a point of contention with a lot of different people. I mean, there are, there are people who are on complete lockdown to the point where they wear hazmat suits in their whole house, and that's a that's one level of um, precaution, I guess you could say. To others who are wa- running around outside shirtless and wanting to give people bear hugs because they miss human contact, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, it, amongst the variety of different individuals, uh, there's just this varying opinion on going out to get fast food. Uh, e- even even amongst my parents, my parents, they went out and got um, Chick-fil-A the other night. But I, I went out and ta- I, I talked about getting some Taco Bell. Uh, today and they were like you can't go get that because of the coronavirus <laughs> so there's like you know there's like a bias with certain right, fast food right. cameras so here's my question for you yes is it okay to go out and get takeout or like drive through takeout hmm it's a good is question it essential? oh is it essential I mean no it's not essential I guess it is in some uh, small sense right because I here's the thing Grocery stores, as we've seen, uh, do not stock for the entire population of, you know, the area that, that the grocery stores, you know, that surrounds the grocery store. You know what I mean? So, so grocery stores are not entirely stocked to feed everybody. I mean, I guess they could be in theory, but they, they just aren't normally um, because most people go out and, and feed themselves. Uh, you know, they go out to eat or they, you know, do whatever and blah, blah, blah. They get takeout. So, so in a sense, restaurants are still in some sense, an essential business. The question is, I mean, what, what are you really asking? Are you asking, do I think that we should go out to, to like be able to go out to get food or do you, are you asking by going out to get food? Are we spreading the disease? Um, both. Mm. Well, I think there's the potential of the disease spreading um, through unsafe um, food handling practices. Um, well, but hold on before before you go there. You know, Taco Bell did put out a very um, a very interesting ad. You know, it looked like it was put together by interns who were working from home and had B stock footage. I mean, you know, when they're using drone footage of a Taco Bell, you know, that's like some intern oof, level video. Yeah, making, that's okay? that's rough. Uh, and and it was to guarantee how safe they were being at Taco Bell. As a matter of fact, right, I right, think right. they even showed a shot of uh, the employees wiping the tacos with Clorox wipes. They were very <laughs> they were very very adamant. About about making sure you feel safe when eating at Taco Bell, right? Um, Cameron, do you buy it? Now, here's well, here's the question that I have ultimately, right? So either you go to Taco Bell and you you eat the food that uh, you know some grubby uh, minimum wage worker has has handed you, right? 
you just put it in your mouth and you don't know whether or not they've they've washed their hands or what they've been doing with that food right you know which is always the case it's always the case but you know and in this time it's especially sensitive um or you go to Safeway and you pick up the food there where someone has placed it on the shelves and touched it with their grubby minimum wage working hands and it's the same deal so it's like it's like what a, what is the, the is there even a benefit to 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 not going out like what is the what's there's still a point well, of contact I, with another human being you know what i mean i can see what you mean like even the packaged food is is has made contact with a human being probably somehow even if they wear gloves right but I'm pretty sure these fast food restaurants, they wear gloves too. My, my thing is like all these fast food employees, I mean, you go to Taco Bell. Here, here's, why I'm, here's why I'm bringing up Taco Bell, dude. People think that you'd probably catch coronavirus at Taco Bell more than any other, uh, you know, fast food restaurant. I mean, or at least really? that's how it so? seems when I bring it up. That's when I, well, when I bring it up with people, right? They're totally fine with you going to In-N-Out. <laughs> Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> or, or they're totally fine with you going to Chick Fil A, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you bring up Taco Bell, here, here's this is my defense of Taco Bell. Let me, let me say this. <laughs> Taco Bell. If you can survive eating Taco Bell, you'll probably survive coronavirus. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um. You know, I wouldn't take that literally. It's a little bit of a joke. Okay. But you know, if you can, if your immune system can handle that that amount of pressure, um, I would say that you're one of the strong and healthy. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And well, then my my well, next okay. my next my next point my next point <laughs> Chick Fil A and and In and Out okay they are packed with employees okay right those places right. there are tons of people you go to talk about there's like two people in there okay you know that's that's limited exposure all right that's not a lot of that's not a lot of people uh you know they can stay twenty feet apart in that or I mean six feet apart in that or maybe even twenty feet apart I don't even know what I'm saying but mm, yeah. No, I see what you mean about um, in and out. You you look in there and you're like, that's not that's definitely not social distancing. You know what I mean? Like that's that's way that's way closer to um, to people than I've been in the past uh, two weeks. So, yeah, no, I mean, but but do you not sh- do you not also sort of share my concern that like, okay, well, you know. It's gonna touch someone, you know what I mean? Like it's gonna, well, it's gonna be, it's gonna be touching someone at some point. So yeah, I mean, you, you, I think you have better chances at a grocery store, especially if you wear gloves. Um, which I did go shopping with my mom. We wore gloves, and I felt like that really um, negated any sort of spread. That is hoping that the employees actually, you know, did, adhere. Did you to- now? Here's the second question on that. Did you wear a mask? When you were out? No. No, we didn't. Mm, okay. Yeah. See, I, I, here's... But I, but I think... I mean, we're no medical experts, Cameron, right? Like, what? I, no, I, I no, think everybody's sort of guessing right now what's going on. The other thing is, like, I'm kind of sick and tired of it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am. I hate quarantine. I want to go back to doing things. Yeah. I, I don't. I mean, they they just announced another thirty days, which is which is tough for a lot of people. But but like okay, yeah. But oh, I don't know. I'm just, and I'm. It can't go on forever. You know what I mean? It needs to come to an end. We need to ta- well, we need to talk about this. We need sure. to talk about when when is the when is the damage, uh, fully done? 
You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. You know, I don't usually pat myself on the back, Cameron, but I do I do remember um, telling everyone that I would, you know, people that would ask me, right, I'm, I'm graduating this spring. Uh, what a way to end, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and I told a majority of my teachers, not, not knowing that it was coronavirus that was going to cause it, told me that I was going to enter the job market in a recession, so I probably wouldn't get a job and I'd be screwed. <laughs> uh, so I had been assuming this uh, truth to, to come to fruition. Um, and of course it did, even though everybody told me that the economy was booming and it was going to be fine, everything was going to be great. I already knew that it was all a lie. And so I've just started receiving, um, emails from some some of my first job applications telling me that they're not hiring or they're not looking anymore, um, which is sort of depressing. It's sad, but I, I am blessed. I still have a job right now that I'm working at and feel important. As a matter of fact, Cameron, you helped out, uh, with a film shoot the other day at the church. Yeah. Definitely. Which is huge. Well, you mean um, today? Actually, yeah, helped out today. Yeah, and I and uh, you know, speaking of staying inside and being stuck, you should know that Cameron and I are actually far apart right now. We are more than six feet apart. Yeah, um, a lot more than six feet. <laughs> in two separate areas, Cameron's in San Francisco, and I am in my own home uh, on a Zoom call. Yeah, this is the way that life is going to be for the for for the rest of our lives. You ever think yeah. about it? okay? So you, you know the depress the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah. So the Great Depression was like so monumental. Did, how old are your grandparents? Mm, I don't know. Most of them passed away already. Right, right, right. So, um, so my my grandma, my oldest grandma, um grew up basically at the end of the Great Depression. Um, but, I mean, her early childhood was like World War II, basically. Um, so, yeah. So she she grew up in the end of the Great Depression. And her parents, obviously, you know, being adults throughout that. Um, and so she has very distinct memories of, of like, what it was like. And, and it, 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 it imprints on you a certain sense of... Um, um, I don't know. It's almost like a restrictiveness, I guess. Uh, mm. like a very a deep sense of of um a resourcefulness and using what you have and and kind yes. of you know and and cherishing also my, what you what you have. My dad's parents grew up in the recession or the, or the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so. You know, I I don't know. I'm curious to see whether or not this will have some certain uh, cultural knock-on effects. I, I know this isn't necessarily the topic of our discussion, but um, but you know what oh, I mean. We, like, we want to be more. Well, I think. Yeah, we want to be more uplifting for sure. Yeah, but but I think I think it's interesting to, um, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting to examine. Like, well, how how do we think? how do we think these things are going to, you know, carry on into the future? And I bring up sort of zoom calls and meetings and, you know, internet based, um, solutions to things, because I think, I think honestly there, it's very likely that, um, you'll see more, I guess, online exclusive, um, gatherings and meetings and things like that. So, I don't know. It's interesting. And podcasts, yeah, I guess, especially. 
it's yeah i mean cameron and i really wanted to keep keep going in person but you know we have to respect some of our parent our parents needs and of course we wanted to respect the law as well so we're just trying to do it mobily as a matter of fact uh the last everything comes from something um as some of our patrons know uh was recorded mobily without us telling anyone so it, we are new to it still um we're still working it out and we are trying to get better at it. Currently, I'm having internet issues because everyone on the planet is using the internet. But yes, uh, just a, a a quick update despite the current events. And you know, with with hopefully moving aside all that depression and and craziness, we would like to present a fun, uplifting content uh, content for this episode, um, ladies and gentlemen. With my worst segue into everything comes from something uh this is the everything comes from something podcast my name is isaac ransom i'm cameron Tuttle, and thanks for joining us uh in your own homes and you know where else i mean maybe maybe you're out and about on a hike or something i don't know and i just want to remind you it's illegal to go outside so don't (laughs) the government will come and get you yeah uh, yeah maybe (laughs) they might get you um, yeah, so this is different, uh, not, not being in person, but I guess it's no different for you as the audience listener. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're going to talk about stuff. Uh, today's episode is all about super lifesavers as is the title that we're giving this episode. Uh, we wanted to talk about some historical figures who have saved a lot of lives to inspire you, uh, to kind of lift you up and, uh, to talk about some history, it's been way too long since we've had a history episode, but Karen and I finally buckled to the the social pressure. Uh, we took some time to research a couple people. Um, because this is a little different of a show, the episode might run a little bit shorter, um, and because I've been having some internet issues, uh, hopefully you can forgive us with any of the road bumps that you may or may not hear. Uh, if you enjoy everything comes from something, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ECFS podcast, throw a couple bucks our way, get some exclusive benefits like a question on the show. Um, currently none of our patrons ask any questions on the show, but, uh, that's because they love us just for our voices and they don't really want to hear us talk about anything. Um, but as Cameron and I disclosed, we believe that a majority of people just don't remember their passwords on Patreon. So if you are someone who does remember their passwords on Patreon, (laughs) Of course, check us out there. You can get an exclusive monthly episode and have your questions read on air because nobody ever asks questions. Um, but we do have like tens of millions of listeners did, every, every single week. I thought, so. did we have a question? I don't know. Did we? Uh, it wasn't on Patreon. Did someone ask us a question? I can't remember. I, I don't know. You can check Patreon, dude. Nah, it's fine. Um <laughs> I didn't I didn't get any questions. Mm. Um but I can double check. Well I can double check for you, Kit. It doesn't matter. Uh we can It does I mean <laughs> it kinda does if we're pitching it. Come on, man. Uh I'm just gonna bet. I don't think we got any questions on Patreon. Not in, not any questions from an actual Patreon. I thought uh, I thought pr- we got one from someone who's not a patron. Yes. Did we not? We have some friends that listen to the show and they ask us questions. And uh, honestly, I, I don't remember. All right. Where well, is this? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, do we want to talk about our first first man? 
Yeah, let's get into it, dude. Let's I mean, do it. so so here's what's crazy. Before I mean, right before we hop in, I just want to say that this idea or this subject was something that you know I I had heard a story about some guy that we're gonna talk about later. Um, who made like a small decision and completely impacted the world, saved a ton of lives in a small action, and nobody knows this person's name. Um, you might have heard it maybe from other stories. We might have even brought him up on the show. But I thought, how fun would it be to list off people who made a massive impact? There, there are tons of names. We've only picked a small number of names, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, we started off with people who had saved the world, but it seems like that list is... Uh, I. I it's big, it's large, but when people say they save the world, uh, for it's, instance, like some very people hard to, save the... Yeah, it's very hard to, like, boil that down to, like, actually saving the world. You know what I mean? Like, that's a very hard... There, There's probably only two or three people who can make that claim. You know what I mean? But but yeah. there, there's a lot of people who have saved a lot of people, you know? Um, but not a lot yeah, of people they have, who have saved many nations or massive communities. Right, right. Uh, in some way. And so we try to pick um, a handful of folks. Cameron, should we start with probably the smallest name on this list? I just thought it was so positive. I wanted to share it. Um, it's it's the last name that I wrote down on the list. And then we can get into the big boys. Yeah. How, do you, how does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. So as we were doing some research, I uh, just wanted to shout out some sources. We were looking at a website called Listverse, uh, of course, Wikipedia and NPR. Um there's a bunch of information on these people. We just pulled some summaries, and hopefully it can be more enjoyable than you actually having to read. I, so. I also have some information by the New York Times and, um, yeah, some other some other sources, just random random places. So We got to make sure that we're covering our butts. Yeah. So there's some sources. You can read a lot of stuff on those websites. Um, yeah, so our first guy is named Cheng Si. Uh, he... I believe has a documentary on him and it is called the angel of Nanjing. Uh, apparently it's award winning and Cheng Si or Chen Si um, is responsible for saving hundreds of lives across a 10 year period uh, being sort of a watcher of a bridge. Um, essentially the story goes uh, that there's this massive bridge called the Nanjing uh, river bridge and it lies over the uh, Yangtze uh geez sorry uh Yangtze river yeah <laughs> um the bridge is massive it is uh 22,000 feet a little over that it's a big um railroad track bridge it's got a bunch of structures on it but it also turns out to be a major suicide hotspot uh, i guess around 2000 people have used that bridge to commit suicide uh, between 1968 and 2006. Um, but this guy, Chen Si, I guess in 2003, was walking across the bridge um, when he saw a guy who was about to jump off the bridge. And, and he acted quickly, grabbed the guy, and pulled him back from the steel railing. And I guess that moment really impacted him. And so he decided that he just wanted to be responsible for this bridge. Um, so I guess on his weekends he would take time to patrol the bridge on his little motorbike um, and basically watch over the Nanjing residents. Um, and, and he looked for signs of depression. Uh, I guess this is a quote from him. And he says, uh, their ways of walking is very passive with no spirit or no direction. So I'll go and talk to them. Um, basically, he's kind of like a, 
a suicide prevention dude and he would just patrol this bridge back and forth and now he's responsible for saving hundreds of lives uh, probably the smallest lifesaver on our list tonight but I was like I don't know like that story about a guy who just kind of rides I, I mean I picture like a bike from like Spider-Man 2 <laughs> like a little moped just driving back and forth like like with such a warm heart like looking out for people who are really down right so yeah, we thought that Chen C is a is a awesome lifesaver, and I just wanted to share a story because I thought it was cool. And apparently, you can watch a uh, documentary uh, about him, Angel yeah. of Nanjing. What what a wholesome dude! <laughs> so nice, so kind, <laughs> looking out for everyone. Yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, there's a lot of people on this list who almost like, well, well, there's another guy who almost like unintentionally, or not unintentionally, but like almost kind of slipped into being a hero or slipped into to making a big impact, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of these people... I mean, what's cool about um, Chen Si is his, like, his direct dedication and his ability to be like, I'm just going to, like, jump out, right, and, and start doing that, right? So... Yeah. Um, some of these other people kind of wake up with a decision right in front of their face and make it without even realizing the, the weight behind it. Right, right, right. So. Well, let's let's talk about one of those people. Um, there's a guy named Stanislav Petrov, um, and he is he's I don't know he might be the most famous person on this list. Um, I, I'm not sure, but he's the one who kind of who I think about when when you're talking about people who who like saved lots of people, saved saved tons mm. of lives, um, and he was basically a watchman. Um, and uh, he he was. Um, he was, uh, a Soviet, um, basically like missile systems watchman. Uh, he was working the overnight shift, um, in the early morning hours of September 26th, um, in 1983. And the computer sounded an alarm indicating that the U S had launched five nuclear armed, um, uh, ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, and he says he he told BB, the BBC in 2013, uh, the siren howled, but I just sat there for a few seconds, staring at the back at the big backlit red screen with the word "launch" on it. Um, and he had the feeling that something didn't really, um, something didn't really make sense to him. There there was some things that that didn't add up. Um, and it, it it says, and I got this from from an NPR uh, article about him. Um, he had been trained to expect an all-out nuclear assault from the U.S., so it seems strange that the satellite system was detecting only a few missiles being launched. Um, and the system itself was fairly new. He didn't completely trust it. After several nerve-jangling minutes, Petrov didn't send the computer warning to his superiors. He checked to see if there had been a computer malfunction. He had guessed correctly. 23 minutes later, I realized that nothing had happened, um, he said. Uh, if there had been a real strike, then I would know about it. It was such a relief. So, so this guy who's just sitting at a, a computer terminal, you know, at at the early hours of morning and uh, nineteen eighty three Soviet Russia at, at the and this was kind of at the height of, um, I mean maybe not the height, but one of the the hot spots of the Cold War, right? Um, you know, it was a big time for, uh, for for you know, growing U.S. Soviet tensions. Um, and this guy who's just sitting in this basically missile command booth um, 
sees the alert, sees this this warning signal that says, hey, we're about to get hit with, with missiles from the U.S. And he he just crosses his fingers and says, well, I don't think that's right. I'm going to ignore it. And imagine, imagine if he had done what he was trained to do, right, which was send the, you know, send the warning system, send the alarm to his superiors and, um, and they would, you know, end up launching an attack. I mean, imagine the damage that that would have done. So, so I think he's kind of the guy that I, I think about most often as being the, in a split second decision, he was the one who, who kind of made, made the choice that no, something doesn't really seem right. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it slide. And, and his whole, his whole career, his whole life was basically on, you know, on the balance. He was not just if he, if he got it wrong, but you know, if he, if he got it wrong and there were five missiles that, that were going to hit the Soviet Union, you know, he was obviously going to be, um, either die in the attack or or get executed later so it was really a life and death this decision for him um you, you know regardless so i don't know it's just he's a really he he it says also in that in that npr article he doesn't he never considers himself to be a hero he was just doing his job but um but i think he i think he is in a sense i mean imagine and uh a more nervous or less professional person uh on that on that that computer screen you know it just it seems like it seems like he really made the right call obviously and it's it's definitely it's definitely good that he was there and not not someone else or else we wouldn't be yeah i mean i mean like and the fact that that call was in the early morning too you just yeah. imagine like first thing into work. Oh man, <laughs> you know, yeah, or, or yeah. you're just about to finish your shift and you're like, "Oh, are you serious right now?" Yeah, he was working the overnight shift, so you know he could have been tired, he could have been groggy. You know, there there are so many. You know, and and those kinds of jobs, we think about them as, I don't know. I always envision those jobs as the ones you take where you're like, oh, nothing's going to happen. You know, this is a great job. Yeah. I get to sit down. I get to read. I get to do whatever I want, uh, you know, because nothing's going to happen. I'm just watching over the 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 radar system. You know, I'm just checking to see if, oh, who knows? The U.S. could fire some missiles at us, you know, and then he gets that he gets that alert. And and yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, yeah, I wonder what it would have been like to watch his reaction, like for those twenty-three minutes. I bet he was sweating. Right? <laughs> he was sweating. So oh hard. yeah, no, seriously. I mean, but I, yeah, I don't know they, what I would have done. I would have just paced up and down and been like, "Oh, <laughs> I don't know how to respond." I mean, not, like I don't want to sound preachy, like with with what I'm gonna say next. But these characters, these people, these historical figures, right? They're faced with an intense amount of fear. And, and like, in that fear, I think it's so important for us to look back at their reaction in that moment. Yeah. Like, uh, Petrov took a moment to say, like, I'm going to take a step back, right? Like, I'm not going to let, like, fear overtake me. I'm sure he was, like... 
I'm sure he was nervous, right? But it was almost like he was like, I need to make sure I get some perspective. He he kept a level head despite the pressure, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, at least that's how it comes across with the write-up, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we deal with a lot of fear in our lives, and it's like, what can we learn from from some of these people? Someone, someone like Vasily Arkhipov... Um, which is, is sort of the guy that, that wanted that, that, um, inspired this topic, this episode, I'm sure I've brought it up. I believe that I heard, um, this story on a different podcast. Uh, I think it was sacred symbols or Joe Rogan, one of the two. Um, and it's this guy who's kind of responsible for, uh, keeping or avoiding a nuclear war in the midst of the Cuban missile crisis. Um, this is the story behind it. On uh, October 27th, 1962, um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, there was a group of 11 United States Navy destroyers and aircraft carriers um, that were out to locate a diesel-powered nuclear-armed uh, submarine, a B-59, near Cuba. Um, I guess despite the fact that they were in international waters, um, the U.S. started dropping signaling depth charges. Uh, these are explosives that were aimed to force the submarine that was underwater uh, to come up for identification because they had heard that there was this uh, Soviet submarine underwater. Um, they started dropping these charges, and there was one. Uh, this this uh, B-59 had not had contact with Moscow for a number of days, and um, they basically had known about the Cuban Missile Crisis that had happened, and... Uh, but but the thing is, is that the U.S. is dropping these explosives and the submarine down below doesn't know if nuclear war has started or not. And this this submarine has nuclear missiles on it. Right. So the captain of the submarine, Captain uh, Savitsky, decides that war had must have already broken out and it was time to launch nuclear torpedoes. Um, but Arkhipov was on the sub. And Arkhipov um, was, I believe, a captain. No, uh, he, he was a higher up, too, on the sub. Um, there were three officers on board, uh, and, and all three of them had to agree to authorize a nuclear launch. Uh, first was the captain, uh, Savitsky, a political officer whose name I'm going to butcher, but his name is Ivan uh, Masklenyov, I think, something close to that, and Argapov, who was the uh, flotilla commodore, which is basically the head of a bunch of different submarines. Um, Russian submarines that were armed with special weapons uh, usually only needed the captain's authorization from the political officer, uh, or to, yeah, and then they were able to launch the torpedoes. But because Argapov was like this head commodore, he also had a key to launch for the approval. Um, Arkhipov broke out and they they basically just started arguing whether or not they should fire these nuclear torpedoes because they had no idea, you know, if those explosives were truly nuclear bombs or something else, right? So, I guess Arkhipov had experience with the K-19 incident. I don't know what that is about specifically. Um... But, yeah, so Arkhipov eventually 
like amongst all the different arguing, um, persuaded the captain Savitsky to surface and basically just wait for orders uh, at Moscow, right? And yeah, so they're waiting for orders, and because they chose not to launch those missiles, um, and even though the general set on launching, he thought it was nuclear war, right? Uh, they basically avoided having starting the nuclear war from the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Which is like a high tension moment, um, in like in history. So if they had launched those missiles, and like it, it would have been bad. It would have been really bad. So I know you have heard the story of Vasily Arkhipov before, Cameron. Um, just it's a crazy, it's a crazy tale. I, I literally. Like to to basically have to convince two other people uh, in such a high tension situation, man. What what do you think? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was just thinking about that as as like basically. I mean, he had to stand up to his superior officers essentially, and and he had to be the one to kind of uh, cool tensions and and not make a rash decision when when it was totally easy to say to make the assumption that you know oh we're, we're probably getting um you know we're probably getting attacked or you know we have we're totally blind we have no information so you know let's let's fire these missiles you know what i mean and and like that's a crazy decision to have to be um to to have to be making i mean it's it's insane it's it's um i I don't know it almost it it makes me glad that um i will uh, presumably never have to make those sorts of uh very uh stress inducing uh decisions i don't know it's just it's it's there's something about there's there's something really courageous about um uh about that story um it kind of reminds me of um do you know about that guy um that guy who sings you're beautiful yeah that actually singer? uh i almost included him on the list what is his name yeah i uh, i think it's james blunt yes yeah, yeah. um he had a not i didn't i also didn't want to include him necessarily on the list but i think it's really interesting as far as like um standing up to his superior officers it's a it's a very similar tale um yeah he was he he was involved with something like the russians had invaded an airbase and he told his superior officer that they shouldn't uh retaliate or invade the airbase uh, honestly, I didn't want to include it on the list because I've plan, been playing so much Warzone and I always <laughs> die at the airbase. So, uh, shout out to him, dude, for for you know avoiding that. I, I for some reason always get caught there. So yeah, I mean it's kind of it's uh it's crazy to think that that guy who just has uh, is just an incredibly annoying uh, musician. Uh, so so such an annoying voice. Um, you know he actually like. <laughs> He kind of did something uh, incredible. Yeah, I think I think what it was was like he was um, NATO had ordered um, him, I guess to or the British the British Army and NATO had ordered him to um, to to take over this airfield, uh, but the Russians had taken over the airfield, and he was um, he was authorized to attack. Um, 
the opposing off the opposing opposing soldiers in order to take this airfield but he refused um and because essentially he thought that he would um start uh, an incident and and he would he he basically said he wasn't going to be responsible for um uh for starting world war 3 is what he said so um mm. so he he kind of has a, a very similar uh story where you know he was he and arkhipov were were um given this this giant task basically of um do you attack or do you retaliate or you know do you do you try to escalate uh, tensions and escalate the situation or do you back down and um and let cooler heads prevail and they were both they 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 both did so it is interesting i don't know yeah i i just think across all these stories right you see these historical figures these heroes really taking a step back right trying to gain a bigger perspective or really even when they're unsure of what their perspective should be right to say like we don't have enough information we don't have all the information right yeah um where whereas everyone else is jumping to conclusions i think i think that's powerful and i think history remembers that and um you know it's something i take to heart cameron i know you take it to heart with the way you act just in terms of like being a devil's advocate in a lot of situations i think it's important to have that um kind of sober self-assessment in all things and and for these people you know it, it ended up saving a ton of lives so yeah yeah, you know, definitely. we've been talking a lot about war. Uh, Cameron, I see you put um, Norman uh, Borlaug on the list. What's he known for? Yes. So uh, Norman Borlaug is an interesting guy. He is, I guess his name, I keep reading this somewhere, um, you know, whenever I look up his name, but uh, I guess he's synonymous with sort of the Green Revolution. Um, but uh, he... <laughs> Um, he, he never really, (laughs) he never really liked that term. He said it was a miserable term, um, (laughs) uh, which is interesting, but basically he, uh, was responsible for, uh, creating a strain of wheat, um, that helped basically feed an entire generation of people. Um, he did a lot of work, uh, in the the 40s and 50s um uh basically coming to he would he would um there was a problem with the the wheat strains that he was manufacturing basically what which were they would give them more nitrogen right but they would get too big and they would fall over. They they weren't sustainable. They weren't they weren't able to um, sustain themselves themselves. So they would basically they would break and they wouldn't be able to be harvested. Um, hmm. And so he created this system of make shrinking the um, the wheat strain. So shrinking shrinking the um, the stock so that it wouldn't wouldn't grow as tall, but it would be sort of like shorter and more um uh girthy i guess uh it would be shorter and and be able to withstand more weight and that way they could they could 
grow the the actual like bulk of the wheat so that it could be harvested more. Um, and with this, I mean, he's credited with saving uh, basically a billion people uh, from starvation. So so his uh, his contribution to to agriculture was was is considered invaluable in uh, the world of uh, especially especially you know third world countries. Um, he was basically able to bring this crop along, and uh, you know he brought this strain of of wheat and uh, taught them how to grow it essentially. And he was able to um, to feed so many more people than than were previously capable. Um, and it's interesting because do you know about the Malthusian catastrophe? Do you, no, do you know about this this theory? It it was a theory um, in the late 1700s, basically, um, claiming that the uh, the and there's some criticisms of it too. So it's it's not set in stone. It it was just a theory, but claiming that basically the population would grow at an exponential rate, where the uh, the food production level would grow at a linear rate, right? And so at a certain threshold, the food production wouldn't be um, completely unable to to sustain the level of growth in the population, right? And right. so as that happened, more and more people would starve, obviously, um, and this is what would be the, the catastrophe, essentially. Um, and so he is... So, so this, this guy, um, uh, Norman Borlaug, he, he was basically he's been credited as stopping a Malthusian ca- catastrophe because he mm. is, he's been able to, to extend the food production in such a monumental way that, um, you know, basically we're, we're able to, to feed a, an increasingly growing population. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's, no, that's he's, huge, man. He's an interesting guy. He got a Nobel peace prize, you know, uh, deservingly yeah. he he he's a very he's a very very interesting man so yeah um fun fact about him uh borlaug you know you've ever heard of that restaurant uh la boulange 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 <laughs> didn't he uh, start that cameron no that's the no he did not <laughs> they have wheat there though uh yeah well <laughs> Cameron, do you ever like how you just lay out this this insightful, you know, educational bit of information, and then I just train wreck it with this mo- the the hardest stupidity you've ever heard? And you just you just uh, ruin it, sour it with with fake news. Yeah, it's it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about uh, tell me about the man with the golden arm. It sounds like a James Bond film. Well, he's from Australia, mate. So mm. yeah, James Harrison. Um, He's a uh, this important blood donor. Uh, essentially, at the age of fourteen, he had to go undergo um, some surgery, and he ended up needing a blood transfusion. And this uh, moment sort of deci- made Harrison decide to pay it forward. Um, four years later, in 1954, he started giving blood, uh, even though he had a fear of needles. But his blood was not the ordinary blood. Uh, doctors discovered that James had a very special type of antibody. Uh, it's an anti-D antibody 
um, in his blood plasmids. Now, this antibody was important uh, because it was administrated to combat a condition called a rhesus disease. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's R-H-E-S-U-S disease. Uh, This disease is when pregnant women have an immune system that recognizes the baby in their body's blood as a foreign uh, cell, right? They're foreign blood cells. Uh, And the mother's immune system then begins to fight that blood and destroy it and it can cause serious difficulties with pregnancy it can even lead to the baby's death or leading to the baby's having issues um you know health issues in the future after birth but james's blood plasma was used to devise a treatment that could stop a mother's immune system from becoming primed and aggressive against uh baby basically the baby's body and and the baby's blood um James was the very first donor uh, of what would become Australia's anti-D program. Um, That's hence where he got the name, the man with a golden arm. And he has donated his blood a staggering 1,173 times, which means he gave blood every two weeks for 60 years, which is just nuts. Um, The Australian Red Cross uh, estimates that the 81-year-old's donations have helped over 2 million babies, which is just crazy. That's a, a massive amount yeah. of, of children. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think he earns his name quite literally. And and what's even crazier is that, you know, this James Harrison guy, he just wanted to give his blood because someone else gave blood to him, right? Cameron, have you ever given blood? Yeah, uh, yeah, I have. A few times, actually. Um, yeah, me too. I, I, I actually don't mind it. I don't, I'm not afraid of needles. Um, no, me neither. I used to use it to get out of class, and <laughs> it was great. So, um, if only they did that for college, and I got credit for it too. But yeah, yeah. I, I used to, used to always try when that the blood drive or whatever would would come up. Yeah. Do you know your blood type? Um, I think it's A O. Yeah, I positive. don't remember. I have, AO I positive, have no, I believe. I don't think that's a thing, but yeah, I don't It's remember. not? You don't think that's my time? Isn't it? Well, is it, well I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> the rare one is like the OO negative, I think, because it can be given to everyone or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've, I've I really wanted idea. the rare blood, but, but you I don't do have not it. have the rare blood. Well, let's keep on this medical train because I have two people that I think have, have I guess, really changed the face of, um, I guess, uh, preventing diseases. Uh, maybe this is where we should end too on the on the note of creating vaccines and uh, staving off further further deaths from things that mm-hmm. are. Um, you know, highly transmissible. Um, so the first guy that I want to talk about is his name is Edward Jenner. Um, and he was the guy who first invented a, uh, a smallpox vaccine. And as far as I'm aware, um, he may or may not, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but he may or may not be the first person actually credited with coming up with a vaccine and the first person to to invent the term as well. 
like come up oh. with the term vaccine. So um, he uh, created the first smallpox vaccine, um, and it, interestingly, uh, smallpox has basically been around uh, forever. Uh, you know, it says it says here a hundred thousand BC. Um, you know, so it's it's oh, it's an days. old. It's an old, old, old disease. Um, I think I was looking at uh, um, looking at pandemics today, and since 1877, right, just 1877, um, smallpox killed around 500 million people. Jeez. So, so that's an insane, insane amount of people. I know. Um, wow. I mean, it was it was really, really huge. Um, but this guy in, uh, the late, the late 1700s basically came up with the first way of, um, preventing the disease and, and he, he did it in a really strange way, uh, that I, most of us probably wouldn't have thought of. Um, he started to notice that milkmaids who had caught, uh, another less well-known disease, but probably you know better known back then, uh, called cowpox, um, would become immune to smallpox entirely. So um, cowpox was basically a version, a very mild version of smallpox um, that you would get from from milking cows who were infected uh, with cowpox, and so he he noticed that these milkmaids whenever they they had been infected with cowpox you know they would be fine and um and they wouldn't out of their family you know they wouldn't get um smallpox and so he had he had observed this and he uh developed the first successful vaccination in 1796 by injecting patients with a sample of cowpox basically he would give them this smaller version of the disease so that they were inoculated from from the the more deadly version um and they found out that you you basically have to re up like re up your your vaccine so you would have to do it a few times throughout your life um but it was very successful i mean some countries even made it mandatory apparently um and so the 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 word was created by uh by Jenner, you know, the word vaccine was created by uh by Jenner, meaning uh, apparently it means uh smallpox of the cow. Um so it's it's it comes directly from from this this story. So he was kind of the first one to to develop this idea of infecting you with something small so that you would be your your immune system would be um you know immune to the to the larger version of it um i don't and, know i don't know why i know about jenner but once you started talking about the milkmaids i instantly remembered it i have no idea why mm, mm. yeah um and so the next guy actually um his name is uh jonas salk uh and he was the one who created the polio vaccine um and interestingly i guess um pol- the the idea of vaccines had kind of i don't know i guess um fallen out of favor or they they sort of they were skeptical people i think were very skeptical of 
the idea of of a vaccine. They thought it would be uh, dangerous to uh, infect you with with sort of a virus. And so he determined that there were three distinct types of polio, um, and he was able to to develop a killed virus vaccine uh, for the disease. And basically, that meant that um, you know the virus had died off at a certain point, and he if you uh, you know, if you injected that virus, um, you would be, you know, you would be immune to polio. And so, um, he tested that over the, the, so it was, he started the tests in 1952 and tested it over the next, I think, uh, few, few years, I think, uh, until 1955. So, and in that test period, roughly 1.8 million children were given the vaccine, um, mm. and he administered it to himself, his wife and his sons. Um, and when it, once it was approved, basically it led to the, the complete decline of, of polio entirely. I mean, it, it, you know, polio basically has, um, completely gone away in the same way that smallpox has. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, these, these two people were responsible for, you know, essentially stopping a a wave of um, of disease. Uh, you know, I mean, think about smallpox killing five hundred million people, but that was with a a way to um, to to slow it down or to stop it to a certain degree. So, how mm. many how many more people would it have killed if if they didn't have this knowledge? You know, and same with same with polio i mean it's it's crazy so yeah yeah no those are like massive discoveries in the medical world yeah even even to the point where i knew the one about the cow milking ladies so (laughs) yeah yeah but yeah so that i mean that's a small list of some super lifesavers i guess we're calling them um we just wanted to do some research about some people who did some great things. And I know that there's some great stuff going on right now amongst the coronavirus. I know there's awesome stuff. I just saw a video from Tesla about how they're building ventilators out of car parts in the Tesla factories in order to try to help the cause. Um, you can also, uh, you can even help. Um, I know that Linus tech tips did a video on YouTube about this software called folding at home, which has been around for a while. Uh, but there's a way that you can set up your computer to utilize, uh, it's computing power, uh, to run this background app while you're not using it, uh, to base essentially run this GPU app that, that tests DNA, um, at calculations. So they basically just have asked the public to loan out their computing power and um, now they're just they're running these programs through people's computing power. It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, and so I know I know that the PlayStation Three had support for that way back in the day. I don't know why I know that. I don't know if it yeah. was folding at home specifically, but they used the PlayStation Three's bandwidth and power. I think through Stanford Medical um, to do sure. something. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it's Stanford. Uh, I don't know why I know that random stuff, but the PlayStation 3's hardware was used to run computing calculations while users were offline. They could use their stuff, and now you can use your computer to do that. Uh, let's be honest, you sw- you can s- you sleep for a decent chunk of time, so 
the computer can be used in that time. I have not tried it yet. Um, maybe I should, but honestly, um, my PC is a little bit garbage. Uh, it's like <laughs> it has a 10 year old CPU in it and just trying to keep that thing alive right now. Um, yeah, but there. I guess we wanted to share some stories about people who did some great stuff, and I'm sure there's great stuff happening right now. Even you can help um, in in some regard, and you can help by you know staying inside, Cameron, uh, and not getting all upset about the quarantine. I'm upset. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. I mean, yeah. I know that um, my girlfriend Jules is going nuts in her house. She can't. She can't leave her her mom's high risk, so they're really locking her down in there, and she's yeah. bouncing off the walls, dude. Yeah. So no, it's tough. It's a tough time, yeah. but we'll get through. We'll pull through. Yes. I believe sure. in us. I believe in us, too. Um, I think hearing stories like this really can give us hope in humanity, which is, which is, which can be disappointing uh, at times. I know Cameron, you would probably agree with that, but very disappointed with humanity. Most times. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's sparkles (laughs) of greatness. That's for sure. And I think honestly for that episode, for, for this episode, it pretty much wraps it up. Cameron, you have any closing thoughts or no, stay, stay home, do what they're telling you for now until we stage a revolt, a coup. Oh, oh Um, but, but for now, just stay inside and, and relax. And you know it, it could always be worse. That's that's what I'll say. It could always be worse. So, um, you know, I probably should have said that. that at the start of last episode and even the start of this episode. But um, just know, Cameron and I care about you guys. Uh, if you feel like you need to reach out, or if you're feeling lonely, you can reach out to us. Um, we're praying and hoping that you're doing well and staying healthy and staying safe. Um, so yeah, and hopefully we can entertain you for an hour. That's the point of the show to at least have some fun and. Hopefully this episode you learned something too. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, we care about you guys. We hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing healthy, and we'll see you next Monday. Everything comes from something is a fully fan funded podcast that happens because of listeners like you. And a huge shout out to our executive producers Darren O'Neill and Eric and Ariel Walk. Thank you for supporting the show. I know I've been saying that part for the last I don't know twenty thirty episodes, but seriously. You guys have been a huge blessing for making sure this podcast continues to go. Remember, if you want to support the show just like they do, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ECFS podcast, throw a couple dollars away, get a couple benefits. Remember, all the benefits, if you're a Patreon, are done through Patreon. Patreon Messenger. Yes, you can just shoot us a message right there and boom, we'll see it. We'll put it on air. Um, that's, That's how it works. Take advantage of those. Again, if you don't have money, totally cool. I know. I'm a broke college kid. I get it. You can just tell friends and family. Spread the word about the show. It's a little weird. It's a little quirky. It's a little different. Maybe someone, uh, some of the people or your friends will like it. And you can always give us a rating on iTunes. That seriously helps. Again, we thank you guys for all the support that you give us. We love you, and we will see you next week.